1: Welcome to Borderlines from the Irish Times with me, Mary Minahan. And me, Freya McClements. This podcast is about changing identities north and south, with one presenter on either side of the border
2: chatting to a guest who gets it. And our guest today is Undertones bass guitarist Mickey Bradley. At the height of the Troubles, the Derry band was singing about teenage kicks on top of the Pops. Mickey still plays with the Undertones and presents the Mickey Bradley record show on BBC Radio
3: Ulster. A larger choice of music Hello, Mary. Hello, Freya.
1: Hi, Mickey.
3: You have to say that, don't you? <laughs>
1: no, no, no. no. I,
3: I, if I was doing a program like this, I would play that too. <laughs> If that doesn't sound very weird. But.
1: <laughs> Mickey, you said in your 2016 book, Teenage Kicks, My Life as an Undertone, that the undertones were street urchins from <laughs> war-torn dairy who battled their way through clouds uh. of tear gas to play punk rock, or that's what they thought on top of the pops anyway. So tell us about the reality. How did a bunch of boys from St Peter's come to record an era-defining single with a title that entered common currency?
3: Yeah, you're right, it has. I see it in football reports all the time. It was that kind of thing of hanging around with boys in third year. You know, when you're about 15, 14, 15, 16, you start hanging around with slightly different uh, bunch of fellas. You're not a, I always define it as you're not hanging around with the fellas that live in the same street as you. You're now hanging around with boys that you, you go to school with. So I started hanging around with uh, Vincent O'Neill, and then Vincent's brother, John, and their friend, Billy. And at that stage, I discovered from talking to Vincent that they had a band. Now, I don't know. In fact, we would they wouldn't have said band. They had a group. It was a group. then. Yeah, that's what they called them. Uh, and I'd never met anybody who was in a group before like that, especially at that age, you know. So I started hanging around with them summer in 74 and then through 75. And... I sort of sneaked my way into it by basically hanging around with them. So I I joined the band in August 1974 in a tent in Bundoran. Now at this stage, when I joined the band, there wasn't a band. It was just these boys talking about being a band. You know, we didn't never they never practiced. I think they was about one guitar. But over the next couple of years, we did start to get it uh, organized, and we got Fergal Sharkey as a singer. And um, we started playing in the Casbah, which is a pub in Derry, which is full of ne'er-do-wells and hippies. Uh, it was like a wee sort of scene on its own in Derry. And through a couple of lucky, lucky chances, we ended up in a recording studio in June 1978, making a punk rock record with Terry Hilly, for Terry Hilly. And uh, the record that we that we made was Teenage Kicks. And then after that, that's chapter two. <laughs> I'll tell you what, you know, I've not done this for ages but I think we ought to hear that again Hold on a second, just talk among yourselves
2: I mean, it's so famous now, the story about how, you know, John Peel played it twice in a row yeah. and that never happened. And was that you made then, in, in a sense? You know, you could look forward to decades
3: of talking <laughs> about how, how teenage kicks came about. Absolutely not. You know, we were we were just so happy to get to that stage that we made a record. And then the next stage was that it was played on the radio. Then the next big stage was appearing on Top of the Pops. That was the thing. Uh, because that's whenever you realised, this is different. Now we are, this... this We have started on this road. Now, we we could have done nothing else after that. We could have made the one record, and we would have been very happy. You know, you make one record, and then you go away and get on with the rest of your life. But we were lucky because of we. Well, I say lucky. We had talent. We knew with John O'Neill and uh, and Fergal Sharkey, a great combination. And we made LPs. We made more singles. We had more hits. and then it's it ended in nineteen eighty three and I would have I would have put money on it being over then, you know. Uh by eighty three the other ones broke up, uh, Fergal went on, had uh, solo success, John and Damien went on and had success with that petrol motion. Uh, I became a bicycle courier in London, and then I came home uh and then I just you know. The rest of my life started. Very lucky and that the rest of my life was uh, a job at Radio Four.
1: Mickey, I suppose like when you're talking about the late 70s into the early to mid 80s, you know what was going on in Derry at that time. I guess everyone knows. <laughs> um, looking back... Um, that sounded like a, like, sounded like a policeman's sense.
3: question there. You know what was I, going on. I, I,
1: you
3: know, who, <laughs> was, who was doing it? Come on, you know. But I know what you mean, Mary.
1: But looking back to that time like my greatest sense of it was, it was all totally normal to us. And I think that has been brought to a wider audience by Dairy Girls, you know, that it was totally normal to have British soldiers walking around the streets and getting on your school bus and so on. Like, did it influence the undertones at all? Did you ever feel we should sit down and write a song about the troubles? Or did you just turn your face away from all that and just focus on
3: punk rock? It's hard to say, and you're right that it was normal because you only have the one childhood. It's not like you have three childhoods and you you can compare one to the other. Well, for most of us anyway. And did it did it affect us? I don't think it did. But then once you started being interviewed, you started thinking, did it affect us? Because journalists will do that. You know, the journalists from London, wherever we went over to do to do uh, interviews, it was always well, you know, growing up in in Northern Ireland. But you don't write about Northern Ireland, and can kind of we go? That's true. You know, um, now mm-hmm. having said that, I have to qualify all that by saying it's John O'Neill wrote the songs. He wrote most of the songs. I would have written some and so on. Um, but we were kind of, I remember thinking at the time and saying at the time to the rest of them, you know, you would really need to be like Bob Dylan to write a good song about the troubles. You know, if he did it badly, you couldn't live with yourself. So that was, that was one of our, one of the things that, that probably affected us, you know. Um, we were happy writing about, uh, you know, girls and and acne and male models and all that. But writing something, like how how would you write a song that explains, you know, explains the ins and outs of the hunger strikes? You know, how would you how would you <laughs> how would you write a song about people being shot dead for no reason in Belfast? Well, obviously some people could, but you know we were the only ones when you think about it as as it has been pointed out recently Van Morrison never really wrote any songs about the Troubles, you know I don't know if anyone ever asked him maybe they never got a chance to do it so you know we, with us we were being this band we were being this group and we were always we always did what we wanted to do we never ever thought of if we did this then we could be you know some people might like us because of this and we might have success here and there so we kind of had this unspoken, um, unspoken policy, really, of doing the records like records that we liked. So basically it meant that we copied the Ramones, we copied Buzzcocks. After that, it was uh, some, you know, 1960s uh, American bands that we would have been influenced by, you know. And do you remember your question? It was a long time ago, Mary. Um, why did we not write about the Troubles? I, I'm going to give a dairy answer just that's why
2: sometimes i suppose that that's the best answer and I, i'm kind of aware in, in the course of this conversation that we've you know fallen into exactly that pitfall that we've done what everybody who's not from Northern Ireland does is that they start off by asking you about, about, about the troubles, you know, but I mean, I mean, you know, I, I wonder, you know, culturally that must have made a difference because when, when I look back and sort of, you know, my, my teenage years, you know, nobody from outside ever came, you know, and you compare it yeah. to, you know, the acts you can sort of go, go and see nowadays. And I don't want to use the phrase sort of cultural wasteland because there was, of course, there was fantastic culture going on. As, as well, but but there, there there weren't maybe those outside influences simply because of, because of the troubles, you know. And I, I wonder, did, did that make a difference to you? Was it the case that you were you you, yeah. you you just had to had to make your own?
3: Well, the way I look at it was that because we didn't see any bands playing live, we got all our music from records, either buying the records or from listening to, to John Peel. So we always. We always um, aimed to get to sound as good as the records. And that's, looking back, that was really difficult to do because whenever you see a band playing live, it's a bit sloppy. They're not as, you know, maybe not as good as the records. But because we didn't have anybody coming here that we could look at and compare us to, we thought all these bands must be great, you know, Generation X, who were good. They must be brilliant because they made some great records. (laughs) You know, The Lurkers, all these sort of almost B-division punk rock bands, we thought, no, they're great. And the records are great. So we kind of must have subconsciously held ourselves to a higher standard. And then by the time we did go to England, we had been playing for a couple of years every week. So we were really good. In fact, by the time we played in Belfast, we had been playing for 18 months every weekend. And I've since talked to some guys from uh, the Outcasts, and you know, guys who saw us in Belfast who were in punk bands. Whenever we went up, the night before we made teenage kicks, we played at a Battle of the Bands competition which Terry Hurley organised in the Whittle Hall, not the Whittle Hall, the McMorty Hall, and the Students Union in Belfast. And they says whenever they saw us coming up to do a sound check, they were like, "Wow, these these guys are great." We wouldn't have thought we were great, you know. We thought, ah, "This is what we do." looking back now I can see why we were so good because it was like we we were locked almost like you were locked in a room and you were told to practice for a year and a half and that's kind of what we were we were locked in Derry and we played because we we didn't we didn't have any girlfriends therefore we would no distractions we had the band and that was it we had the band and us and a couple of friends and we were very very we were really tight in both senses tight musically but also just tight as in living in each other's pockets, so that the fact that no one came here, it was great for us and not and and not in the sense that we looked good. it meant that we were we were learning from records and not learning from life bands.
2: you did almost get the clash to Derry, though, <laughs>
3: yes, didn't you yes. That was 1979, by which stage we had had uh, some success. Summer of 1979, we were we had an LP out and we had a couple of appearances on Top of the Pops. And we thought, because we are big-hearted, we thought it would be great to get somebody like the Clash playing in Derry. Because even though bands had started to play in Belfast, nobody ever came to Derry, really. No bands that we would have liked. So we organised um, a, f- a festival, we called it, Derry Dance, we made these big badges and everything, Derry Dance, because we didn't want it to sound like a festival, we wanted it to sound kind of corny. So this is this is what we had. We had The Clash organised, and we had The Damned as well, and we were going to play. And uh, it was great. We even went, we played four or five nights in the Marquee in London, the famous Marquee Club in London, just to raise money to pay for the show, to pay for this festival thing. Everything was going great. And about maybe two weeks before it was due to happen, we were in a London studio. We were recording studio in London, and Joe Strummer came along with his, I assume somebody from his management, and he looked to be fair to him. He looked a bit sheepish, you know. He looked a bit kind of. It was like, I you know, I I have to tell you, and really what it was was that he had he had got a letter from somebody who claimed to be from the Red Hand Commandos in Londonderry. And it said that because of an article that was in the NME a couple of months earlier, Joe, the NME ran this spoof election thing. This was 79, just the federal election. They They ran this article about Joe Strummer will stand for election. And this is his manifesto. And in his manifesto was a withdrawal of British troops from Northern Ireland. Because it's Joe Strummer, you know, obviously that's what he would think. And um, somebody obviously read it and somebody kept it. And somebody at once they said, the Clash, bloody clash aren't coming here. So they sent a letter saying he would be assassinated if he sets foot in Northern Ireland. And we were kind of, to be honest, we were kind of saying, No, but we, we're doing the festival, we're doing the show in the Templemore Sports Complex. It's, it's like the far side of Chantalla, you know, down the bunk around the road, it's nearly on the border, and we were kind of, I, I was dead, I was nearly what I said to him, but you like, there's no, you won't get, no red hand commander boys will come in to Chantalla, you know, they'd be too scared to come in, but I was, uh, I, I thought better of it, so we just had to go, right, okay, and then of course the thing was, we couldn't say why, our, our manager at the time, Andy Ferguson, he says, you can't say, it's because he, do." Just we've got a death threat. He says, you just can't do that. And we went, OK. So he says we couldn't get insurance for it. And it was only years later that that, um, that we we decided to say, you know. But I felt sorry for him. You know, because, like, the clash, very political bands and so on, you know. But whenever he came up against the actual reality of, this is what happens in Northern Ireland, you know, you will get a death threat. Now, it may, there may be nothing behind it. But it's. Still, I've never had a death threat, so I can only imagine what it's like. And Joe Strummer, he kind of went, oh, right. <laughs> so they're not doing it. But it was, you know, the, the, I don't know whether it was as a result of that, but they got us to support them in America, so maybe they felt sorry for it. Or maybe that was organised before, and I can't remember. But anyway, that's that's the time the clash nearly came to daring.
1: Mickey, you, you talked about having only one childhood and one youth, obviously, and you know, you don't know any different, but I suppose like the undertones were a pretty homogenous bunch <laughs> in the sense that you are all young male, dairy Catholics, like everyone around you. You know, did you spend much time thinking about that when you were younger? Did you think about identity much? Or is that something that changed when you got older? And people do talk about punk as being yeah. kind of outside of sectarianism, you know, a bit like snooker. In that sense, yeah. like was that a positive of punk
3: it it was in other places. it wasn't really in Derry um, and the, the funny enough, talking about the clash, the clash was supposed to play in Belfast in nineteen seventy seven and it was cancelled because of insurance because of something. but that was the people in Belfast always said that was the event that brought punk rock fans out of their houses and out of their own estates into the center of Belfast, where they met people from different religions, from the other religion, and they discovered that they had common cause in punk rock. So it was it was definitely important for that. In Derry, it wasn't really, to be honest. First of all, we were the only band, the only punk rock band, in, in like 77, 78, and we didn't really know that many other f- fans. Now, as it turned out, there, was a, there were a couple of people then who would come and see us in the Casbah who happened to be Protestant. You know, But it was never a big hands-across-the-border thing for us or hands-across-the-barricade thing. It was never that, really. And then, this is this shows how thrilled we can be. Maybe it was just me. But whenever we then began to be kind of labelled as part of that Belfast punk thing, because we we made a record in Belfast with Terry Hilly, and because we were then kind of, oh, yeah, the undertones, you know, bringing people together. And we kind of went, no, we're not really. No, it's not that we're against bringing people together, but we would never ever claim to be oh yeah, we're 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 reaching out the hand across the foil to our you know, our brothers in in the waterside and all that. So I uh we, we had a we had a strange relationship with that. You can see that it's obviously a good thing, especially in Belfast. But Derry Derry wasn't as sectarian as Belfast. Maybe it's obviously there were sectarian murders and so on. But we didn't have the same geography as Belfast where you can, you know, the famous, like they say, North Belfast, like a patchwork of different areas. In Derry, you could wander around and wander around and never really wander into the wrong place. You know, you have to be very, especially in the on the city side, so you have to be kind of very unlucky. So we're, we weren't from that kind of background, you know. Yes, we were all Catholics. We only knew Catholics, you know. That's just the way Derry was,
2: You're listening to Borderlines. We'll continue our conversation with Mickey Bradley after this short break.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, What the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood f- Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free that 's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads
2: we 're talking a lot about about identity and and influences and and you know the, the punk influence obviously, but I mean Derry you know it seems that Derry is such a big part of of who you are of who the undertones are. You know, it's the place where you you, you made your life. Uh, you know, you you still live there. I mean, is it is it fair to say that actually, Derry w- was the the big influence, and, and and I wonder, you know, how how did that play out in terms of that influence?
3: It was an influence. Would, the the main influence would have been the records we were listening to, uh, and and reading about punk rock. But we did, I think we we did know that we would have a different sort of spin on it, being from Derry. You know, whatever we were we were going to England, we would have had a very... First of all, we were all very close, as I said. So all our jokes would have been referenced to Derry, you know. Everything would have been had Derry, sense of humour to it, which is OK, except that it only made sense to five people in London at that time. <laughs> None of it ever travelled. Like, our managers and the record company people didn't understand us at all. But we were all... We were just like, you know, young fellas away making the same jokes about people in Derry. So that kind of influenced... And also, we were very conscious as well of not moving to London. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that, but one of the reasons would have been that we didn't want to be that that band from Ireland that moves to England to make it in London. We were lucky in that we didn't really have to do it because we'd made the record. Teenage Kicks was on top of the pops. It was causing a bit of a stir all the time, we were still in Derry. So it meant that we could stay in Derry. There was also the other thing as well, but that at this stage, some of us had got girlfriends. So we were kind of, we had the luxury of being able to, you know, yeah, great. We were off. As Damien and myself used to always say, it's like another day off school. You know, yeah, we don't have to do anything. We're in a band and, you know, we can just hang around Derry. Derry was, was important to us, you know. It really was, Um not that we were ever, not that we were ever influenced musically by it. You know, it's not like we suddenly started playing traditional Irish music or anything, or, or anything like that. In fact, in a sense, we kind of rebelled against what Derry was. Dairy music was like in terms of the 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 older guys. You know, must have been <laughs> at least in their mid twenties, who were um who were playing like rock songs. who were playing Led Zeppelin and deep, and so much Deep Purple, but they weren't. They were the generation before punk, so we we definitely reacted to that. We we had we didn't like these bands, and sometimes we didn't like these people for no no good reason at all. It was that kind of thing. You know, they're in a band, we don't like them. And then years later, you meet them, and they're really lovely, <laughs> lovely fellows. Like so, there were there were people there were people that we did like, but musically, we thought we were in a <laughs> we were in a wee world of our own. We thought no other band and Derry knows really what's happening you know where the only ones. <laughs> and there's a element of truth to that I think as well
1: and Mickey when you look at kids now in Derry in their teens and 20s like how does their youth differ from yours like when you look back did you have bad experiences that they won't ever have or you know some some good experiences maybe that they won't ever have because of how the world has changed
3: yeah ah, that's a good question i think well, the obvious thing now is that, you know, everything is available to you now. You know, where uh, music, information, videos, it's all there for you now. In 1975, 76, it wasn't. In fact, you know, you, you, you to hear records, you had to send away for them because even the records weren't played in the radio. So you had it. There was a lot of made-order singles being, being bought. Um, but then... That's you know that's good. It means that you 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 focused more on them. Like whenever there are singles, I I remember having from that time, and I could nearly tell you every note on them. You know, like Beatles LPs, which I know everything that's happening with it. Whereas now there's so much music out there, and a lot of it's brilliant, but there's just so much. I don't know how anybody catches up. And then the the other thing as well as I was saying about you know these other other bands, and we didn't like them. I don't think that happens anymore in fact, I don't think that's happened for a long time because the older I got I used to meet these younger bands and they were all really friendly to each other, which we were never <laughs> you know we were like deadly rivals you know but um but the people are they're the more they were definitely more open open to to listening to other people um uh, the other the other big thing this is a very technical thing is that Uh, good guitars are very cheap now compared to what they were back in 1975 you know it was like beyond any guitar you could afford to play was really badly made Uh, but now you can get great guitars that's of no interest to anybody except me I think but uh, that would be the main thing
1: I think like a lot of people in the Republic would expect you to talk about the Troubles and how all that has changed and the arrival of peace and so on you know (laughs) But it's interesting that no matter, you know, you keep bringing it back to music yeah. and that was obviously like the core of your existence. Yeah. And, I mean, did you ever feel that maybe Derry was a bit of outside the political mainstream when you were growing up in the sense that there were decisions being made elsewhere that were completely out of your control? Um, you know, things were affecting your friends and family and relatives that you couldn't do anything about.
3: Um, there must have been, obviously there must have been, you know, Um it's not like the thing is it's not like we were sort of wandering around completely unaware of the troubles you know you were going what are these people doing you know we used to go along and watch rats. not me but some of them you know at the time used to throw the odd stone so you You know we had sides you know we 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 knew that we were Catholics from Derry therefore nationalist. you know we knew that that we, we were never, you know, we wouldn't be friendly if there was a, a foot patrol walking up the street. We wouldn't say, how are you doing, boys? You know, there wouldn't have been that. Police stopped us. You wouldn't have gone, and how's your day going? Oh, you know, you, you were, we, we were in our camp. Um, and, you know, we, we we knew guys that were, that were involved and so on. Um, and, but I don't know as I say it wasn't conscious that we decided right we're not going to get involved in that we're going to do this band none of us got involved you know none of us like none of us were in the IRA you know like we went to school we guys, we ended up in the IRA but it wasn't like we all decided we're not going to do that we're going to do this just the way it it worked out you know there wasn't that many I'm sure there wasn't that many people (laughs) who joined the provost. It's not like there were thousands and thousands and thousands. So most people didn't get involved. We didn't get involved, but we still knew what was happening. And we then, at the same time, had this band going, you know, in O'Neill's front room. None of us drank. Maybe it was something to do with that. You know, none of us really drank. There was... So it's not like we, we were all trying to get any pubs from the wage. You know, we... we there wasn't there wasn't a big culture of that. There was no drugs. We didn't have a culture of drugs. We didn't go to discos. headed discos. Still do. And that was the only... It was the, the only kind of hobby we had, really. Reading the NME, buying records, playing in the band or practising in the band. And... Football. We would have played football. Yeah, that was that was one thing. Played football in the street, you know, as as obvious as that. So we were, yeah, we were definitely from like you know the nineteen forties.
2: Listen to all of that. I wonder how much your life has has changed, really, because you you still you still play in a band. Obviously, you you can't do that at the moment because <laughs> of COVID. You know, you still listen to an awful yeah. lot of music. You know, from from what 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 I know of you. Yeah. You know, I, I mean. You know, I,
3: I I don't play football on the, street,
2: the streets, F- Fair enough, <laughs> yeah. but I I wonder, you know, thinking of the ways as well in which sort of Derry has changed. I mean, two of the, the 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 sort of the the turning points that that stand out to me, if you like, were Derry's year as City of Culture yeah. in twenty thirteen, and we talked about how there uh-huh. was none of this before this, and suddenly there were these sort of world famous acts and just these these amazing things. I mean, things like the Lumiere Festival that lit up the, the buildings, there was world-class dance music. I mean, all of this, um, and in fairness, Teenage Kicks was the soundtrack to this. I mean, I mean, the lyrics were up in lights on a shirt factory. Yeah. Quite literally, there, there was the music. I mean, I mean, one of our former colleagues in BBC Radio Fall even sort of um, went to the stage of being virtually sacrilegious and saying, you know, I, I think that record's just being played on the radio too much, you, you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I wonder yeah. you, you know with, with that and then with Ebrington, with, with the, the wonderful opening up of the, the former army mm-hmm. barracks which I think opened in, in 2012 didn't it just before and it was the focus um, of a lot of the events so we had this sort of changing of the space in the city I mean I wonder this is turning into a huge question but you know where are you now and where is Derry I suppose
3: Well I'm a lot older I think that has something to do with it too a lot older and uh, you know have children and all that, but I'm just think I'm thinking of a line from a Clash song, "Clamp Down." You know, you grow up and you calm down. And I kind of, I, I have not that I was ever a, a, you know, an activist or anything. But I kind of, I've taken a, a step back from it all. You know, you kind of, you see things and you you you, you listen to the news. I listen to the news, but I listen to the news and I, I switch off quicker than I used to. You know, um, I kind of get fed up with politics. You know, and you've seen it coming around, and you, you know, you you've seen it come around before. And I listen. It's so for that, uh, I I definitely have kind of changed. Also, i've I've seen I've seen culture come and go as well. You know, uh, city of culture was great. I really enjoyed it. The UK city of culture. I've the undertones played a part in it as well. Um, but you know, things good. There were good things happening before it. And there were good things happening afterwards, you know. So as Derry changed, physically, I think it's really important. You mentioned Everington there. I think that has definitely uh, changed, not even so much as a place where culture can happen, but it's a place where people can go. And it's, it's, you know, Derry's a great walking city and it's becoming even more of a walking city. Now, you know, because of the Peace Bridge and because of Everington and because, you know... Along the the river, there is now just a just a footpath, nothing fantastic. There's hardly anything on it. There's a couple of things on it, but the idea of going out and walking around and meeting people and talking to people, that has grown a lot. I don't remember the same kind of purpose it or focus it. Whenever I was a teenager, you know, uh, first of all, you couldn't get down to the docks. They were they were working docks, so there was nothing really to take you down there. So physically the city has changed you talked about the city having changed physically um, do you think attitudes have,
2: have changed because if you if if you look at the news and you look at the headlines there's so much focus on on division, you yeah. know, on, on you know, divisions o- over the Northern Ireland Protocol, over, you know, the big questions like, you know, United <laughs> Ireland or not. I mean, all, all these sort of big, big issues, yeah. you know, even sort of roused flags, bonfires, you, you know, I mean, have, have attitudes changed? Is Northern Ireland a less sectarian place that it was, or have, have divisions simply been heightened?
3: Don't know. It depends where you live. Like it always did. It always depended where you lived, you know. Um, I grew up in Craigan. Love Craigan still love uh, my sister still lives in Craigan is but but a Protestant wouldn't live in Craigan you know It's just so the sectarianism is there and you know loyalist estates and dairy a Catholic wouldn't live in it that's just the reality of it but underneath all that or outside of all that you know people people get on you know on a on a day to day basis people really do get on I just whenever somebody says the Northern Ireland protocol I just laugh you know because it's another phrase that'll come up. And it's like talks about talks. It's about, you know, cold house and all this. These phrases that have been have been going for ages and ages. And I used to pay attention to them. And now I kind of go, meh, you know, sort it out. You know, it will sort it out. The The, the main thing, is, I it's it's a fairly sort of obvious thing to say, is that not that many people get killed now. And that is really the thing that you you have to hold on to. You know, and even whenever they say peace is under threat and all that, you've heard that as well. Now, I'm not saying that bad things won't happen, but you kind of go, yeah, peace is under threat, but, you know, it's still all right. You know, so dairy is definitely better. The, the the things that affect dairy now are the same things that affect everywhere else. The jobs aren't there. You know, there are some jobs there. But I remember the time whenever the shirt factories, you know, people, people, Got jobs, proper jobs, and they you know, they spent money at the weekends and all this. So all that was great. That's not there now. But then there's a bit of dairy was always unemployed too. So even that is even that we we, we, we learnt to cope with, you know. Said a man who hasn't had a proper job ever. But you know what I
1: mean. I know the heart can sink a wee bit when the B word is mentioned, Brexit, Brexit. right? But um yeah. can you talk a wee bit about how it is actually impacting people's everyday lives in places like Derry. I mean, I I can't think of two counties in Ireland that are more interconnected than Derry Derry and Donegal. Donegal, You know, you don't have that, that sometimes you've really intense rivalry between neighbouring counties and you don't have that. It was kind of almost an escape valve for Derry people, wasn't it? During the Troubles, it was hard to get across the border, but once you got across, it was great. And then it got very fluid and very easy and now there's the concern that it's going to get hard again.
3: Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what the effect of Brexit will be. Def, nobody knows, really. And, you know, you, you hear all these stories. And obviously, I, I personally speaking, I thought it was a disaster, you know. But does it affect? It doesn't affect me at all, you know. Um, I, I know people that live in, live in Donegal, work in Derry. Uh, and... So doesn't the big the major thing, of course, was COVID in the last year. Maybe it is too, so to, to, to tell. But are we not allowed to see? I, there's a this is how shall shallow I am. It's like a typical dairy thing as well. It won't affect us in dairy. <laughs> we used to always think that about lots of things, you know. Even the BBC and their TV licences, they'll never come into Derry looking for TV licences. Don't worry about that. So I still, a wee bit of me still thinks, oh, yeah, there's going to be a border between Derry and... Yeah, if there's not going to be soldiers there, there's not going to be a border between Derry and Donegal. So I... Blissful ignorance, Mary. It might be just blissful ignorance on my part. But I kind of... I operate along the basis of We'll cross that bridge when we cross that bridge, cross that border when we come to it. I don't think I, I can't really see much of a problem because they're not going to, I don't think they're going to be starting, you know, searching you as you go across the border the way they used to. You know, they used to look in your boot and they used to open your bonnet. If they start doing that, then I'll change my answer. But in the meantime, I think we'll see what happens, you know. That's why I'm not in politics. <laughs> <laughs>
2: What do you think the future holds for this border city, or is this again? This is why you're not in politics.
3: Um, Derry will still Derry will will still go on, definitely. The, as I say, like everywhere in the world, it's 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 all about it's all about jobs. That's what you really want to you know. Um, I think Derry will Derry, uh, we uh, island city, as they say, it kind of always was a wee place on its own, and we are far away. You know, we are far away from. From Belfast, even I think So you know, seventy-five miles. But also completely different place too. And uh, you know, we, we, as you say, we look at Donegal and Derry. will be grand. it will be interesting to know if the border goes. If the border, you know, if 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 there is a United Ireland, what would Derry be like then? I I would find that odd because I obviously, you know, I my parents didn't even grow up uh, whenever. It was uh, the the one the one island you know the one country, so I would love to see what it's like in a hundred years' time, just to see if the border did go, and what happened to Derry, you know, probably be good for it to be honest.
2: And what what about you? Are you still a punk? Uh
3: I, a, a historical more than anything else. A historical punk, you know. I was. I always think I was very lucky. I was exactly the right age for it. You know, I was like. I was seventeen. Whenever the Sex Pistols, God Save the Queen came out, whenever Anarchy came, Anarchy New K came out, and first Ramones LP. So it's like somebody who who t- became of age whenever Elvis started or whenever the Beatles started. So I, I am really lucky that like that, and I still like the same bands as uh, I used to like when I was seventeen or eighteen years old. Still love the Ramones, still love the Beatles. You know, we were always Beatles fans too. So yeah, I would uh, I would be a yeah a punk, but then you know there are a million and one definitions of a punk. You know. um, I still don't like Led Zeppelin. I can say that. <laughs> My son, who's fifteen, who's fourteen, he loves Led Zeppelin, but I would have to say, nah, still don't like Led Zeppelin. So there, yeah, if that categorizes you up as a punk, I'll, I'll wear the badge.
1: Punk's not dead, as they used to say. And it's always interesting to speculate on the future of the border. Next week, we're talking to the author Rosemary Jenkinson about having multiple identities, the awkward facts of history and how a trip to Palestine changed her perspective. That's on Borderlines every Monday from me, Freya McClements. And me, Mary Minahan. And our producer, Declan Conlon. Thank you for listening and goodbye for now.